Good morning. I pray that you all had a nice Christmas. I hope that Christmas brings to mind for you special memories, either in recent years or as you reflect back on your childhood. Christmas was always a a special time for our family growing up here in San Antonio. I have three siblings, and uh, some of you know my older brother, Josh Davis, the Olympic swimmer. And uh, Josh has been a great ambassador for Christ, a great ambassador for the sport of swimming, and he's been a great big brother as well. And he was very influential in pointing me to faith in Christ during my college years. And if you have spent any time around Josh, you know that he is a very gracious and generous person with his time and generous in the way that he encourages others. But that generous spirit may not have been something that came naturally to Josh. At Christmas, the three other siblings probably spent a little more time thinking through and planning the gifts that we were going to give to one another. But Josh was always a little more spontaneous. And one Christmas day, after he had opened up our presents to him, he summoned us to his room and made the pronouncement that for Christmas, we could have anything in his room as our gift. (laughs) And our eyes got wide as, as we began to contemplate Possessing certain items in his room that we had long since coveted. And Josh continued, you can have anything in my room, pause, except these things. And then he goes through this long litany of items that were off limits to us. And by the time he got to the end of this exhaustive list, the only items that remained still up for grabs were an old tennis ball, a ceramic ashtray that Josh had made at summer camp, and one of his old Speedos. Merry Christmas, kids. Thanks a lot, Josh. I'm exaggerating a little bit. It probably wasn't that bad. Um, And I'll I'll come back to this story in a little while. But several weeks ago, as we were talking through whom among us on the pastoral team would be preaching some of these final Sundays of the year, I was given this Sunday, and it was decided as we were looking ahead in the book of Acts that this passage in in chapter 4 would fall to me. And as I began to read through these first 20 verses, I was thinking, wow, this is a great passage. But why does it look so familiar? And it took me a little while to realize that I had preached from this same passage on the first Sunday of this year. <laughs> we weren't in a series on Acts at the time. I just, I just like this passage. So it's interesting that in the providence of God, this section fell into my lap once again. 
perhaps God is trying to teach me something that I didn't quite get the first time. So here's Acts 4's little bookends on our 2015. And if I had forgotten that I had preached from that passage, my prayer is that your memories have also been wiped clean (laughs) these last 12 months. No, many of you have have great memories, so I'm not going to preach the same thing. But that's the great thing about God's Word. You could preach from a certain passage ten times. And although the interpretation doesn't change, new insights, new applicational truths can present themselves to us in new ways. If you were here that first Sunday of the year, the message was titled, Imitate Him. And we looked at four ways in which we must imitate Christ. And you can check that out online if you wish. But this morning, I want the emphasis of our time together to be on another central theme of this passage. And that is the name of Jesus. His name is one of the great facets of the Christmas story that we have just looked at. Joseph hears that his betrothed wife-to-be Mary is expecting a child. But Joseph is not the father. And it appears that Mary has been unfaithful to him. And Joseph and those in the community could have easily made Mary's life very difficult because of her perceived infidelity. But we read in Matthew 1.19 that because Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace Mary, he decides that it would be best to quietly divorce her since their betrothal had already been made official. Joseph thinks that perhaps he could just discreetly send her away and move on with his life. But an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because this child growing inside of her is from the Lord. A baby conceived in a miraculous way by the Holy Spirit. And it's a boy. You're having a son. And you shall call him Jesus, Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. And you can imagine Joseph waking up from this dream and lying there in bed and considering all that the angel had just told him. And suddenly his own plans to help Mary sneak out of town are now forgotten. Joseph wakes up with a new hope for the future. A future with the name, the name of Jesus. What a name. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And here in the book of Acts, Luke speaks of the name of Jesus 33 times. But his name was much more than just a name, as we will see this morning. We first see that the name of Jesus had great power and authority. Last week, we saw with Pastor Michael how Peter used the miracle healing of a paralyzed beggar as his platform to preach the gospel in Peter's second sermon 
in Acts chapter 3. And now at the beginning of chapter 4, the, the temple guards elbow their way through the crowd and they interrupt Peter's sermon and they arrest Peter and John and they drag them off and put them into custody overnight. It says in verse 2 that the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed. The Sadducees were religious leaders who did not believe in the idea of a resurrection. So Peter's teaching of Christ rising from the dead challenged the Sadducees at the very core of their beliefs. During these first few chapters of Acts that we've been looking at, things have largely been working out pretty well for this new Christian faith. The Holy Spirit came upon the believers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Many people are coming to Christ and they are, are meeting together and having amazing fellowship and communion and sharing with one another as they had needs. But persecution is coming. And Peter and John's arrest here in Acts 4 serves as a first indicator that the religious leaders had fully rejected this new movement. But even as Peter and John are in prison, the Holy Spirit is working, is working and quickening and enlightening the hearts of the people that Peter had just preached to. And by the power and authority of the name of Christ, we read in verse 4 that the number of believers grew to about 5,000. That next day, all of the Sanhedrin gathers together and they bring Peter and John before them. The Sanhedrin was like a Jewish Supreme Court and it consisted of 71 people, a combination of 70 Sadducees and Pharisees and one high priest. And the text says that Annas, the high priest, was there. Annas was the previous high priest, but he was still a very influential Jewish leader. And, and like our U.S. presidents still carry that title, even after they leave office, we see the same thing here with Annas. But it was actually Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the official high priest at the time. And then we see two other names mentioned in verse 6, John and Alexander. We don't know much about these men. Most likely, John is Caiaphas' son, who would succeed him as high priest. But Peter is on the hot seat, and he has to answer under oath to these powerful men. And as the questioning begins, it's almost as if the Sanhedrin places a baseball tee in front of Peter, and they give him one of those oversized kitty bats, and they place this big old, large, oversized plastic softball right there for Peter to just hit it out of the park, the way that they set him up so nicely with this first question. By what power or in what name have you done this? Referring to the healing of the paralyzed man. And you can imagine Peter thinking to himself and smiling as he, he approaches the bench. You want to know by what power, or by whose authority, or in what name we healed this man, 
Let me tell you, Your Honor. It's by the name of Jesus. It's by the power of his name that this once crippled man now runs and jumps and leaps into the temple and stands here before you now. Evidence A. And it wasn't a supernatural touch from me that healed this man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit associated with the name of Christ. So the name of Jesus is not only a name that has power and authority, but it also gives confidence and courage to those who speak in his name. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Just weeks before, Peter was denying the name of Christ to a servant girl in the high priest's courtyard and cursing as he did so, saying, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the man. But now Peter's back. And what a great comeback story. And Peter is no longer in the courtyard of the high priest, but he's standing before the high priest himself. And he's no longer afraid, no longer ashamed of the name, but he's boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. And Peter's confidence did not come from within, from the flesh. His boldness came from a filling and an empowering of the Holy Spirit and from a close association with Christ himself. It says in verse 13, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Peter and John had not been to seminary. And in view of their accusers, they were not qualified to publicly teach on the law and spiritual things. But seeing these disciples and their boldness and their confidence left these religious leaders speechless. Their courage came from sitting at the feet of Jesus. Speaking of courage, that reminds me of the cruise ship dinner that was taking place one evening, and numerous toasts and and speeches were being made about the guest of honor who, on the ship, who happened to be an 80-year-old man. And this gentleman was, was somewhat embarrassed and surprised by all of this attention. But he was reluctantly and, and humbly accepting the praise being poured out upon him. And he was the recipient of all of these accolades because earlier that day, a young woman had fallen overboard from the ship. But within seconds, this older gentleman was there in the cold, dark waters at her side. And the woman was rescued, and this man became an instant hero. And when the time finally came for this brave passenger to speak, the dining room fell into a hush as this man rose from his chair. And this brave octogenarian slowly made his way 
up to the microphone to speak these stirring words. Thank you. This is all very nice. But I just have one thing to say. Who pushed me? (laughs) Seriously, who pushed me? And then he dropped the mic and walked off. No, that's not exactly the courage that we're talking about here with Peter. Nobody pushed Peter. The boldness, the courage that we see in Peter came from the Holy Spirit empowering him and giving him the words to say to the Sanhedrin. And what does Peter say? He says, if we are in trial because we have done a good thing, healing this man, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, verse 10, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, it's by this name that this man now stands before you in good health. Peter turns the tables on these religious leaders, and he now puts them on trial. He points the finger at all 71 of their faces and says, that same Jesus that you rejected, that you beat and spit upon and whipped and crucified on a cross, it's through him and his resurrection power that this healed man now stands here before you. So the name has great power. The name gives us confidence and courage when we speak in his name. And then the name of Jesus is a name that brings salvation to all those who call on that name, to call on him in faith. Verses 11 and 12. Peter speaks of Jesus in verse 11 by quoting Psalm 118, 22. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone like we just sang about. We read this statement and it's not necessarily a reference that is very familiar to us today. But it would have resonated greatly with the people of that time. And it refers to a Jewish story, a Jewish legend of sorts, when Solomon's temple was first being constructed in the Old Testament. It was built from the rock quarries that are in the ground underneath the temple. And as the story goes, the temple was built without the sound of a hammer or a saw. The masons did all of the work in the quarry below. Each rock was perfectly formed so that when it reached the temple, it could be put into place in a more reverent context without any hammering. Or pounding. And according to Jewish tradition, one day a great rock was shaped by the master mason. But when the builders received it, it was, it was very different. And it didn't seem to go with any of their, their plans. So they set the stone aside. And eventually the rock just seemed to be in the way. So someone just pushed it over the edge of this rise where it rolled down to the Kidron Valley below, where it was forgotten amongst the small trees and shrubs. 
But as the construction of the temple was coming to an end, the chief cornerstone was needed. That great rock that was going to support and hold everything together in the temple. But the builders could find the cornerstone. So they sent word down to the masons below. But the masons sent word back up to the builders. Say, we already sent up that rock some time ago. And one of the builders remembered that unique stone that they had disregarded and rejected. So they went down and searched among the trees and they finally found it. And with great effort, they raised up that rejected rock. They hoisted it up by ropes back up to the temple and it was set into its rightful place where it fit perfectly as the chief cornerstone. And every Jew would have been familiar with that story. And now Peter is saying to the Sanhedrin, Jesus was the Christ, the perfect anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah who fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, this great rock and cornerstone upon which all human government would stand. But you couldn't handle him. You couldn't control him. You rejected him. You threw him out. You cast him aside. And you crucified him on a tree. And you left him for dead. You had him buried. But death could not hold him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was hoisted up. He was raised to new life and then exalted and perfectly set in his rightful place on the throne of heaven. As I mentioned earlier, the name Jesus or Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. And Peter says in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There are other stones that people may place their hope and trust in. Other names of gods or, or false religions or things of this world that we look to at times for fulfillment and meaning. But God's word is very clear here. There is salvation in no one else. No one but Jesus can qualify as that chief cornerstone. The law can't save you. Religion can't. Good works can't. Being a good person can't. Simply trying harder can't. One name alone, the name of Jesus, can save you. If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10.9, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. His name holds great power. His name gives us courage and confidence and boldness to speak it. His name brings with it salvation. And then finally, we see that Jesus is a name that can't be silenced. It can't be silenced, but seeing the power of the name of Christ at work silenced the Sanhedrin, the wealthiest, most educated, most powerful men 
in Israel. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. So powerful was this testimony that not even a single voice was raised to challenge it. Verse 15, the Sanhedrin can't put together a a cross-examination, so they order Peter and John to leave. And they begin to discuss with one another, what are we going to do with these guys? We can't deny that a miracle has taken place with this healing. It's apparent to everyone in Jerusalem. But so that the gospel does not spread any further, let's order them to speak no longer in this name. Notice how the authorities couldn't even speak the name Jesus. It was so offensive to them. But Peter and John answer in verse 20, we might stop if we could, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In Greek, this phrase has a double negative, making an emphatic point. For we are not able not to speak. It's impossible for us not to speak the name of Jesus. The power of the name left the Sanhedrin speechless in verse 14. But for Peter and John here in verse 20, the name, that same name, left them unable to stop speaking and testifying to what Christ had done in their lives. The power of the name was stronger than the command from the religious leaders to be silent. There is no other name. The name carries with it God's authority and power over disease and sin and death. It gives light to the darkness of the blind. It breathes life into dry bones. It drives out demons and commands the most ferocious elements of nature into submission. And through the power of the Spirit, the name gives us strength in our weakness. And it's a name that when uttered in faith brings salvation. And it's a name that can't be silenced. In John Bunyan's famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, we see this allegory of a man's progress through life in search of salvation. And if you are familiar with that story, the pilgrim's name was Christian. But few remember his original name. And the scene when the pilgrim is is talking with a porter, and the porter asks the pilgrim, what is your name? And the pilgrim answers, my name is now Christian, but my name at the first was Graceless. It makes me think of what our executive pastor, John Gordon, and his wife would tell their kids when they were teenagers and and about to go out with their friends. John and Kathy would say to their kids, remember who you are, a Gordon, and remember whose child you are. You represent us. But more importantly, you represent the Lord in your words and actions. If we have come to Christ by faith, 
we take on a new name. Christian, believer, saved by grace. That is who we are. No longer are we called graceless, for we have been adopted as sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. That's whose we are. We're going to see that opposition to the name of Christ will continue throughout the book of Acts. And it's an opposition that continues today around the world. But praise God, his name will never be silenced. His name will endure forever. Psalm 72, 17, may his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. May we look to the Father to help us live our lives in response to that which is eternal, the name of Jesus. For there is no other name. For these last few minutes, I want our time of application this morning to involve some homework for you. As we approach the new year, it's a practice for many to make New Year's resolutions. And studies show that 45% of Americans make resolutions, but only 8% are successful in achieving those resolutions. It's not a very great success rate. So instead of coming up with a list of things that may be hard to achieve or quantify in terms of success or failure, instead of resolutions or a to-do list for 2016, I want to challenge you by Friday to write out a to-grow list. Three to five areas in your life in which you would like to see growth in the new year. And then share that list with someone. I'm going to share two of mine. My first thing on my to-grow list is I want to grow in my prayer life. I was challenged after reading a book recently by Donald Whitney called Praying the Bible. You, You should look at it. Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. And as the title suggests, the book talks about praying as we read God's word every day. And some of you are probably already doing this. But we find that as we read, as we pray, and pray God's word, our prayers start becoming less about us and more about God. And one method this book suggests is to read five psalms a day. Whitney writes that God gave us the psalms to us so that we would give the psalms back to God in praise and prayer. And so after quickly scanning through five psalms on a particular day, you go back and you pick one of those psalms to pray through. And you begin praying by reading the first line of that psalm and then communicating to God however the Spirit leads you based on what you just read. So if you read in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You then pray to God, Father, thank you for the many ways you have shepherded me. Thank you for leading and protecting me and calling me to yourself like a shepherd does his flock. 
You also provide for my every need. Thank you for the way that you sustain me. You never leave me in want. Be a shepherd now as you lead and care for so-and-so and what's going on in their situation. And then you can move on to the next verse. If you read a verse and you're not led to pray after reading that particular verse, just move on to the next verse until you come to the end of the psalm. But along the way, God will bring to your heart people and situations and praises that you can lift to him. And it's a way to saturate our prayers with God's word. Number two on my to-grow list is I want to become a more intentional neighbor and witness to the love of Christ, to those on my street, those in my neighborhood. So often I get caught up with the dealings in my own home and within my own property lines, and I pass up opportunities just to simply walk across the street and engage my neighbor and pray for him and show that I love them and care for them. One of my favorite musicians of all time is Rich Mullins, and he's now with the Lord. But one time he spoke about loving your neighbor and your enemy. He said, go bake a cake for a friend. Actually, take that cake to an enemy of yours. If the cake is good, you may lose an enemy and gain a friend. If the cake is bad, at least vengeance is sweet. (laughs) If you can't think of a single enemy, take your cake to some neighbors that you don't know very well. If the cake is good, you might gain some new friends. If the cake is terrible, at least you will no longer be without enemies. (laughs) So that's two of mine. Grow in my prayer life and become a more intentional neighbor. What's on your to-grow list? Pray about it over the next few days and, and maybe share that with someone. And then pray together that God would not only do a great sanctifying work in your life through these areas, but ask God to surprise you as well, for him to grow you in areas that perhaps you may not even be thinking about. But God knows what you need to become more like him. He knows what's best for you. And his provision, his generosity in our lives is rarely spontaneous or a last-minute gift, as I experienced with my brother Josh. Josh felt like he was being generous when he told us to pick from a few things in his room as our Christmas gift. He meant well, and I love him for that. But it's a big contrast when you consider the unspeakable blessings and riches that come to us as believers from Another Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Isn't it great that Jesus holds nothing back when he lavishes his love and his grace and his mercy and gifts upon us? He doesn't set aside his leftovers for us, but he saves the very best for us as his children. His gifts are in abundance for all those who trust in him, who place their faith 
in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, continue to give us a spirit of worship as we celebrate you and your birth this week. And may that sense of adoration continue in our lives each and every day. Not just on Christmas. Give us hearts set on you. Hearts set on eternity as we live for you. Give us patience for that day when you will come again. Until then, give us boldness to profess the name of Christ to those who don't know you as Lord and Savior. What a name. As John Newton wrote, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Father, thank you for sending your Son to soothe our sorrows, heal our wounds, and drive away our fears. For it's in you, Lord, it's in your name that we have great joy, confidence, and strength to face tomorrow and a new year. It's in you, it's by your Spirit that we have salvation and eternal life if we place our faith in Christ alone. And his name. And Father, I pray your hand of blessing upon all those gathered here. Lord, I thank you for each one of them. I pray great favor upon them as we start a new year together. And I ask all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. If we could pray for you or encourage you. In any way, our prayer partners are down here. I'll be down here as well. We would love to speak with you. Go in peace now to love and serve the Lord. Happy New Year.